0: Welcome to this Touch Podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Ophthalmology. This podcast is a recording of a live Touch Satellite symposium held in June 2023 at the annual meeting of the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centres. In this symposium, Dr. Dahlia Rothstein, Canada, is joined by leading experts Dr. Owen Flanagan, USA, and Dr. Jeffrey Bennett, USA. Together, they examine evidence-based approaches for early and accurate diagnosis, appropriate treatment selection, and patient-centred care of neuromyelitis optica-spectrum disorder, or NMOSD. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Alexion. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME.
1: Patients with NMOSD experience an erratic and deteriorating course of disease, resulting in cumulative disability and negative impacts on emotional well-being. Prompt and accurate diagnosis is critical for early treatment initiation and improved patient outcomes. MRI and testing for aquaporin-4 IgG are essential for early diagnosis and to differentiate NMOSD from multiple sclerosis and myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein antibody-associated disease, ensuring appropriate treatment selection. Traditional treatment practices for patients with NMOSD are focused on relapse prevention with immunosuppressive therapy. However, 25 to 60% of patients continue to have recurrent attacks and require escalation to biologic therapy. Recent advances have led to the development of new evidence-based biologic treatment options which have been shown to reduce the risk of relapse and disability progression in NMOSD. The differences in disease course and presentation of NMOSD require treatment to be tailored to each patient. A multidisciplinary approach to managing patients with NMOSD and wider clinical presentations is essential to ensure improved outcomes and quality of life.
2: So hi everybody, Uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us so bright and early on a Friday morning to learn more about NMOSD. So I'm gonna be your moderator this morning. My name is Dr. Dalia Rothstein. I'm from the University of Toronto. So we're gonna be talking today about latest developments in NMOSD, diagnostics, treatments, and patient-centered care. So our learning objectives are in front of you. We'll be talking about diagnosis of NMOSD, treatment, including emerging treatment strategies, and individualized management plans. So we'll start off with a talk on identifying NMOSD early, current, and emerging approaches. We'll then turn to implementing the latest data into clinical decision-making for NMOSD. And lastly, we have a talk about managing the broader clinical features of NMOSD. And then we'll have a chance for a panel discussion amongst our faculty. It's my great privilege to introduce uh, uh, the other members of this panel. So we have Dr. Owen Flanagan from the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Jeff Bennett from the University of Colorado, so close to home, and both uh, internationally recognized experts in NMOSD. Uh,
3: Thanks, Dr. Rotstein, for the kind introduction. And thanks to everyone for coming so early this morning. It's my pleasure to talk on identifying NMOSD early, current and emerging approaches. So when we think about neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, it's a, a difficult disease sometimes to predict when relapses will occur. And these attacks that occur can be quite devastating. So if a patient has a single attack they may, with myelitis, they may drag one leg. If they have two attacks, they may require a cane. If they have three attacks, they may require a walker. And if they have four attacks, they may require a wheelchair. So disability can occur pretty rapidly, and thus it's important to get the diagnosis right, uh, right away. As you can see here, up to 90% will have an aquaporin-4 antibody uh, positivity so it's really important that people are aware to order the aquaporin-4 antibody which can be ordered in blood and is diagnostic. Uh, Even still with the availability of this assay uh, some people don't think of this disorder because multiple sclerosis is the most common uh, disease associated with demyelination and many times these patients are initially diagnosed as multiple sclerosis and subsequently uh, it's only later that they get the diagnosis of NMOSD. And indeed when these patients are given a diagnosis of MS, if you place them on many of the medications that are used to treat MS can make NMOSD worse. So it's really important to uh, get the diagnosis right early on and discriminate it from MS. Uh, There are some diagnostic challenges, and this was highlighted in the question earlier. So there are other autoimmune conditions that can mimic uh, NMOSD. uh, MOG antibody disease is one in particular that's uh, quite similar to NMOSD, also multiple sclerosis. Uh, other immune diseases, sarcoidosis, can look like NMOSD. And then spinal cord infarcts can sometimes mimic a myelitis of, um, of NMOSD. Or sometimes the lesions in the spinal cord or in the optic nerve can be large and swollen and mimic a tumor. So, um, and early on, if pa- when patients have just had one episode, for example, they may have myelitis or optic neuritis, it can be more difficult to discriminate than later in the course when they've had multiple episodes of myelitis or optic neuritis. The Acoporin four antibody test is really good, but there are important things to remember about the test. For example, in spinal fluid, it's not as good as it is in blood. So it's easier to obviously get a blood test than a spinal fluid analysis, but it's important to remember because if you order just the spinal fluid, you may miss up to 20% of cases of neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. Also, you wanna send the antibody test before a patient has started treatment. So if a patient receives plasma exchange, which washes out all their antibodies, if you test them after that, it's going to be negative. But even if you do test at the right time, there are some patients who uh, are negative for the antibody but still fulfill the syndrome of NMOSD. And I think that's a heterogeneous group of disorders that you need to really expand your diagnostic workup at that point to look for a variety of different conditions because seronegative NMOSD is likely many different diseases combined, and it really should be a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, Another thing to note is that the aquaporin-4 antibody test can take a week or two to come back sometimes. So sometimes you need to initiate your acute treatment on the suspicion that it might be NMOSD. Because NMOSD responds, we usually treat attacks with steroids and oftentimes plasma exchange is very useful. So sometimes we have to initiate the treatment before the antibody test is back. So what about the diagnostic criteria for NMOSD? These were published in 2015, and they require, you can see, some core clinical characteristics here. And there's three main ones to think about. Firstly, optic neuritis. Uh, second, acute myelitis or transverse myelitis. And third is an area postrema syndrome, the area postrema being the vomiting center in the brain. So these patients present with intractable nausea, vomiting, and hiccups, and sometimes first go to a gastroenterologist uh, before coming to a neurologist. There are some other syndromes here brainstem, diencephalic syndromes, and cerebral syndromes. And then you need to match that clinical syndrome with an aquaporin-4 antibody positivity. And then always, you want to make sure there's no alternative diagnoses. But with our latest assays, the the diagnostic test is very good. So if you have a cell-based assay positive, it's extremely likely you are dealing with NMOSD. The same is not true of MOG. The MOG antibody is a little bit more problematic. If if your antibody is negative, or you don't have the ability to test for the antibody, then there are some additional features that you need. In addition to this optic neuritis, myelitis, and areopasthema syndrome, you need some MRI supporting features uh, to go with those. uh, And there are some supporting features also for some of the other syndromes here. So again, for seronegative NMOSD, one of the main messages is that should be an extensive workup looking for all kinds of different disorders. Is it an atypical MS? Is it sarcoidosis? Could it be a different antibody, crim 5 antibodies? So there are many different things that can fall into that category, including MOG antibody disease, which is probably the most common mimic and an important one to test. Uh, this just goes over a little bit of the cell-based assays uh, here. And I can, uh, I'll use my mouse here just to show you that we started off, uh, this was discovered actually at the Mayo Clinic by Dr. van de Lennon on tissue-based uh, immunofluorescence. We uh, look uh, down the brain on mouse tissue and we, we run blood and, and spinal fluid on mouse tissue. And we saw a certain pattern of staining in these patients, but it only picked up about uh, uh, 70% or so of patients or just over 70% of patients. Similarly, we later moved to an ELISA antibody technique, which also was useful and easier for high throughput. But the ELISA assay has problems in that there are a risk of low positive, false positives at low titer, and then also it's not quite as sensitive. But what you'll see over here is that the cell-based assays are really where Uh, what is recommended and indeed in the diagnostic criteria they recommend cell-based assays and that might be a fixed or a live cell-based assay. The live may have slight advantages but really any cell-based assay is a really good test for NMOSD. So you want to be really looking for a cell-based assay when you're trying to make this diagnosis. In terms of the differential diagnosis, um, if we think about NMOSD in the first uh, row here, uh, what we'll note is that the lesion length of the lesions within the spinal cord are often three or more vertebral segments, what we call longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis. And these are often central on the axial images. And sometimes they have bright spotty lesions that look almost like a syrinx within them. And then later on, these lesions kind of tend to uh, reduce in size over time, and there may be associated spinal cord atrophy, because the NMOSD is a pretty destructive process, and that's why we, we need to get in with treatments early. With multiple sclerosis, the lesions are usually shorter and more peripheral in the cord, and they tend to persist over time. The lesions will persist, but they don't tend to get as much spinal cord atrophy as the NMOSD. With MOG antibodies, about 70% will be longitudinally extensive and 30% will be short lesions and it may involve the conus and usually it involves the central region, sometimes just in the gray matter forming a H sign and the lesions over time, it's interesting, it's different to MS, multiple sclerosis, meaning multiple scars. The lesions with MOG antibody disease often resolve completely and don't leave a scar. Uh, There have been studies, uh, more sophisticated studies, using functional MRI and resting state MRI that have shown alterations um, within the brain, particularly within the visual pathways. We're starting to learn that when patients do get optic neuritis, that there can be some downstream effects within the uh, occipital lobes and visual cortices. So there are some effects that we may not be able to see with conventional MRI. Um, Another tool that is available to us now is called optical coherence tomography, or OCT. This is quite useful um, in the setting of optic neuritis. It can help us detect retinal nerve fiber uh, uh, thinning and ganglion cell layer thinning. And this is something that sometimes will follow over time, where we can see, uh, one, if the patients had prior optic nerve involvement at a first onset, and then we can see if there's thinning over time. And this is used quite a lot in research studies now and in clinical trials, and can sometimes give us some indications of what sort of pathogenesis is going on within the optic nerve.
2: We have a few interesting questions to start us off. so. Dr. Flanagan, if suspicion is high, so I guess you're in terms of your clinical picture, and yeah. you get an initial negative antibody test, when would you consider retesting? Especially if the patient needs, you know, more intervention like plasma exchange as soon as possible and starting biologics. Would you suspect that the antibodies would be negative with those subsequent therapies?
3: Yes, yeah. Yeah, so it's an excellent question. You know, we have looked over time to see patients who are initially negative, and it's quite rare that they transition to positive. It's probably 1% or less. So, um, but I do think it's worthwhile retesting. You may need to wait three to six months after plasma exchange for the antibody to come back. Um, but it's important to, I suppose, make sure that there wasn't something interfering with it, like that you did get the test before the plasma exchange and that that it was not a, a false negative in that way. And otherwise it's difficult because the treatments are only approved for aquaporin-4 positive NMOSD. So it might be important in that situation also to test for MOG antibodies. Or you might consider if it was highly suspicious that you would test CSF also. But the the serum is is better and it's very rare that we would see a CSF positive and not positive in the serum.
2: So what's your approach with testing for MOG antibodies? Do you usually send it at the same time as aquaporin-4 or do you wait to see the aquaporin-4 result?
3: Uh, Yeah, I usually send both at the same time. I think they're quite difficult we, we talk a lot, and we have a cases uh, program later today at 3pm, and we, we talk a lot about some of the different clinical manifestations, but in reality, there's a lot of overlap. And, you know, the optic nerve is only so long, and sometimes we say, well, if it's in the posterior or the anterior aspect, anterior may favor MOG, posterior may favor NMO. But I think, in reality, it's quite difficult to distinguish. So I usually send both. The other thing to mention is that with MOG antibodies, uh, there is some data suggesting that the CSF may be a bit more useful than it is with aqua. 4 so if you're suspicious the suspicion is high and you're suspicious of either aquaporin 4 or MOG antibodies it might be reasonable to look at those in the spinal fluid too
2: okay so I think we have time for one more question so I think you highlighted really nicely in your talk some of the important points in terms of differential diagnosis of NMOSD what would you consider to be the main red flags when considering a diagnosis of NMOSD
3: yeah, I think uh, some of the red flags, if you look at the diagnostic criteria, many patients are sent to to our clinic and maybe to many others where they're given a diagnosis of seronegative NMOSD, but oftentimes they only have Uh, one area involved. And to be seronegative NMOSD, you have to have dissemination in space. You need to have two different regions. So if you have a progressive myelopathy or a subacute myelopathy only, and your aquaporin-4 antibody is negative, a lot of those patients ended up being sarcoidosis, for example. So you wanna be careful if you only have one region involved, or if it's a hyperacute myelopathy, it might be a spinal cord infarct. So I think that's one red flag. You can go back to the criteria, really look at it and apply it strictly, and then make sure you do an extensive evaluation. and then, you know, some patients will end up in that category of seronegative NMOSD, but I think it's important to apply the criteria strictly because most patients who refer to me at least won't fulfill those criteria and end up having something else.
2: Okay, thank you. That's very helpful.
4: Pleasure to be here this morning, and I look forward to an interactive uh, session on implementing uh, the latest clinical decision making in NMOSD. I first want to go over the three FDA-approved therapies in the United States for relapse prevention treatment in neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. First, there is eculizumab, which was studied in the PREVENT trial, which was a one-to-one prospective randomized treatment trial that evaluated the use of eculizumab, an anti-C5 complement monoclonal antibody against placebo for the treatment of relapsing neuromyelitis optica patients. It's important to note as we go through the subsequent trials, that each trial had different enrollment criteria, which makes it very difficult to compare the results head-to-head. But more importantly, some of the trials, such as the PREVENT trial here, allowed enrollment of patients who were on pre-existing therapies and to continue on those uh, therapies during the trial. One important note is that anti-CD20 B-cell therapies were not permitted to uh, be continued in this trial, and they had to be discontinued at least three months uh, prior to onset. And in this trial, as you can see, there was a robust 94% reduction in attack risk, hazard ratio 0.06, so a highly significant benefit in the prevention of relapses with ecolizumab. The percentage of patients relapsing can be seen on the left. And a subgroup of patients who were either on no other background immunosuppressive therapy or were on steroids alone were also enrolled in the trial. And that comprised about 33 patients of the 150 some odd patients in the trial. And the proportion of those patients uh, that had Excellent relapse prevention control was similar to the overall population at 96%. Through the long-term projection of this trial, outwards on a median uh, duration of monotherapy for those patients of 2.8 years, there was excellent continued control with no further relapses. The proportion of patients who were relapse-free overall in the trial uh, was very high. The second treatment uh, that is currently approved is in This is an anti-CD19 monoclonal antibody that promotes targeted antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity of B lymphocytes. CD19, similar to CD20, present on the surface of B cells, but on a broader spectrum of B cells, beginning at through the pre-B cell lineage and extending through to the early plasmoblast and plasma cell lineage. So about 50% of the plasma cells, basically short-lived plasma cells, are still positive for CD19. The strategy with inebilizumab was obviously to deplete B cells, having an effect presumably on early antibody secreting populations that might uh, be producing the aquaporin-4 IgG that you've heard about that drives NMO pathophysiology, but also Depleting B cells that may be involved in antigen presentation as well as pro inflammatory uh, cytokine production. In the end momentum trial, which was the largest of the phase three trials establishing therapy. There was no background therapy allowed in the trial. And this had a very interesting design in that the patients were randomized three to one to receive drug or placebo, and the patients were evaluated for six months only. And during that six-month period, if there were no relapses, you graduated on to therapy. If you had a relapse, then you switched on to treatment with inabilizumab. And as you can see uh, from the left-hand side of the diagram, as I'm showing with my pointer, there was a 77% reduction in risk in the aquaporin-4 positive patients enrolled in this trial. In the PREVENT trial, it was solely aquaporin-4 seropositive patients. In the inebilizumab, a small fraction of patients uh, because of enrollment criteria, criteria that is the 2000 and six Wingerchuk criteria were allowed to be enrolled as uh, seronegative subjects. So in this uh, study the open label extension over a proportion of roughly about four years showed continued efficacy with those receiving uh from the start of the trial being uh, roughly almost 90 percent uh, attack free at four years, and those who originally uh, received placebo, modestly less at about 84 percent. Satralizumab is an interleukin-6 receptor binding monoclonal antibody that interferes with IL-6 signaling, both in uh, trans-signaling as well as in direct signaling through the IL-6 receptor. Satralizumab was studied in two analyses for NMOSD. Both involved the enrollment of both aquaporin-4 seropositive and seronegative patients, but one, the Secura-Sky trial, allowed background immunosuppressive therapy, and the other Secura-STAR trial, shown in the middle, was only limited to those receiving a monotherapy. In these two trials, both the aquaporin 4 seropositive only showed robust depletion, uh, sorry, reduction in attack uh, risk at 79% in the Secure Sky trial receiving background immunosuppressive therapy and 74% in the Secure Star trial. In the open-label extensions running now 3.7 years, again a large proportion of patients. Remained attack-free, 71% in Secure Sky, 73% in Secure Star. What's important to note is that the reduction in severe attack rates and those attacks of uh, the resulting in significant uh, disability were also markedly reduced in these trials. And in these uh, two trials, it is important to note that while these patients uh, had both aquaporin-4 seropositive and seronegative trials. These trials were also uh, impressively able to reduce significantly the attack risk across the broad spectrum, but not independently due to treatment numbers in the seronegative subjects. So what about the adverse event profiles for these immunotherapies? You can see on the left a summary looking at the treatment-related adverse events across all of these uh, primary Phase three clinical trials. And you can see that broadly there were similar amounts of treatment-related adverse events, obviously related quite differently based on the mode of administration. For the interleukin-6 receptor therapy, satralizumab, the only therapy that can be self-administered, which is a subcutaneous injection, injection site reactions were uh, the most frequently reported adverse event, and momentum infusion-related reactions were very minimal and slightly less than placebo. However, urinary tract infections and arthralgias which were slightly more than 10% of the treated population uh, were the most frequently reported adverse event. And for the PREVENT trial, the upper respiratory infections, nasopharyngitis, back pain, and dizziness were a large, larger proportion of the treatment-related adverse events that were reported. What is important to note is overall, the rates of adverse events were not significantly higher than placebo. And more importantly for Ecolizumab, where there is a black box warning for the risk of meningitis and all patients had to be previously vaccinated with both tetravalent vaccine as well as a serotype B vaccine. There were no reported cases in the PREVENT trial of meningitis reported. There was one case in an earlier phase 2 trial. Recently, and recently published in the Annals of Neurology, Ravelizumab, a modified version of ecolizumab, was studied for the treatment of aquaporin-4 seropositive NMOSD. The entry criteria were basically identical to that of the PREVENT trial for ecolizumab. And the major considerations here is that ravulizumab was engineered by protein modifications uh, to persist longer in the circulation, resulting in administration loading doses that are only every two weeks for the first two doses and weight-based and followed by subsequent administrations every two months instead of every two weeks uh, for the ecolizumab. So in this clinical trial, of note, the external comparator here was the placebo group from the PREVENT trial. So there was no placebo group run in this trial. That is because of two practical considerations. The first consideration, obviously, at this time that the trial was started, uh, there were no other comparative therapies available. And if such a comparator therapy had been uh, present, it would have taken roughly a 1,000 patients to differentiate based on... Uh, potential efficacies, efficacies of the agents, a positive result. But as you can see in this trial, there was a 99% roughly reduction in relapse, and there were zero relapses reported in the ravalizumab uh, treatment group. The 42 relapses, similar obviously from the PREVENT trial that was carried forward for comparison. The treatment related adverse events, very similar between uh, the two trials that is, PREVENT and Um, trial with ecolizumab and ravalizumab in the CHAMPION trial at roughly 90% and a similar distribution with most of these adverse events uh, being on the mild range. What's important uh, to note is not that the distribution of adverse events greater than 10% were remarkably different than they were in the PREVENT trial, but that meningococcal infection in this trial was reported in two patients. As opposed to zero in the PREVENT trial, these were both uh, cases outside of the U.S. The uh, vaccination history, what exact agents uh, they received, when they received those vaccinations is unclear. One of the both patients recovered quite well with treatment. One continued in the trial and one discontinued. One was a tetravalent uh, meningococcal strain. The other was a meningococcus B strain. So, how are we going to use these agents in the treatment of NMOSD? There's many clinical decisions that have to be made in uh, trying to decide about what agent is preferred for any individual. First, are they starting basically from scratch? Is this a newly diagnosed patient or has the patient previously been on therapy and had problems either with adverse events on a prior therapy or has been uh, failing that therapy? The administration route and the frequency of administration varies, obviously, between these agents. The intravenous agents, ecolizumab and inebilizumab, have quite different frequencies of administration. Every two weeks for ecolizumab and every six months for inebilizumab. Satralizumab, self-administered, allows some variability with uh, home-directed therapy, but could be cumbersome for some uh, patients with uh, disabilities, and that's delivered on a monthly basis subcutaneously. What is the status of the patient's disease? Have they had devastating attacks? Is it urgent to quiet down the disease? And the rapidity of action that we see with ecolizumab can be quite uh, beneficial. Comorbidities uh, that the patients may have, the ability to uh, self-inject, the ability to travel for infusions, the ability to receive home infusions uh, may be problematic for some patients. And of course, aquaporin-4 status. all of these therapies are only approved by the FDA for aquaporin-4 seropositive patients. Cost, especially in the U.S., can be of primary consideration, and when we think about cost, we have to think about what type of insurance, unfortunately, in the U.S. is covering that agent. Is it medical insurance for an infusion therapy? Is it pharmacy insurance for self-injectable therapies? And... How is uh, travel able to uh, be necessary for each patient with regard to both administration and monitoring of treatment? And of course, safety is of consideration with regard to uh, potential uh, issues with baseline infections, hepatitis, tuberculosis, and uh, can be primary uh, exclusions for IL-6 receptor inhibition therapy and B-cell depleting therapies. Considerations in the future for pregnancy uh, can also be of primary importance with agents that are uh, known to have at least no reported effects uh, that are significant during pregnancy, such as in ecolizumab, or can be timed around pregnancy administration uh, with inebilizumab. So all of these considerations I'm happy to discuss further in detail, and also we can discuss what we haven't, which is the... Immediate and acute treatment of NMOSD relapses, but I'll stop there. Thank you
2: So our first question here is from Judy Dieppe She asks what do you do for patients on satralizumab who develop neutropenia? I'm interested as well because I have a few patients who are modestly neutropenic on satralizumab and what do you give GCSF?
4: Yeah For my personal experience, uh, I haven't had yet any satralizumab patients with neutropenia, but I have had, uh, prior to the approval of satralizumab, tocilizumab patients with some uh, neutropenia. Uh, I, at that point, uh, stop any further infusions of the therapy, and uh, based on uh, the uh, level of depletion, if there's no or exceedingly low neutrophil count I have given uh, GM-CSF without any difficulties.
2: Okay thank you for that. Uh, So another question how do you time meningococcal vaccines for ecolizumab? I think they're the person's implying when you initiate ecolizumab so given that there are two in the series how far do you space them apart and what do you proceed with ecolizumab in between? Yeah
4: Uh, I follow the current uh, FDA um, and infectious disease recommendations with initial um, single uh, vaccinations for the tetravalent as well as uh, meningococcal B vaccines and the subsequent series I believe uh, can be every five years but don't uh, commit to my memory on that aspect but uh, there's a nice guidance uh, available online for uh, the series
3: you can Can I ask you a question? Do you you use prophylactic antibiotics in those patients, uh, particularly when they're coming off of rituximab, or in any patients you have with uh, eculizumab, do you consider prophylactic antibiotics, or how do you?
4: Oh, for if I have the time to uh, vaccinate uh, prior, which is in most situations, people coming off of their acute relapses uh, on steroids, um, I will... Uh, not do prophylactic antibiotics. If uh, we're initiating ecolizumab in the acute setting without uh, prior access to vaccination, they'll continue on um, antibiotic prophylaxis until the vaccine uh, protocols are uh, initiated. And one could consider uh, two weeks as the first uh, big robust B cell response uh, after vaccination. And uh, one could consider uh, discontinuing after that point.
2: Okay, thanks. That's very helpful. So one final question. This is a specific scenario. We have a new diagnosis in a 46-year-old person diagnosed concurrently with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome and also positive for the aquaporin-4 antibody. Insurance denies an and forcing rituximab. What would you do in this scenario?
4: Um, I, I often at this point, uh, and of course this is uh, a unique U.S. situation, but... Uh, I will uh, pick up the phone and I've had um, excellent response uh, arguing on a peer-to-peer against um, uh, the use of an off-label therapy which is rituximab for uh, this indication and uh, often with uh, certain threats and I can talk offline about it uh, to tell you how to approach uh, them with the argument. uh, I can get uh, particularly what Uh, I want uh, approved, which is uh, an anti-CD19 therapy. Uh, I think it's important to note that there's quite uh, a potential difference. And I've had surprisingly uh, thinking methodologically about how these uh, treatments work, a differential response uh, anecdotally between anti-CD19 and anti-CD20 in a number of individuals.
2: Okay, thank you so much, that's useful. We're going to proceed with the last section of this morning, uh, managing the broader clinical features of NMOSD. So there is a very heavy burden of this disease. We know that many patients with NMOSD are afflicted by comorbidities. So in one study, 67% of patients with NMOSD had a comorbidity compared to around 42% of controls. And in particular, other autoimmune diseases are overrepresented in people with NMOSD. So here, 19%, but this has been studied and several other cohorts as well, and is often around 20%, compared to about five or 6% in the general population. So that often informs management. We also know that NMOSD has a significant impact on quality of life and daily activities. Many of these patients are left unemployed due to their disability, which means lost income and financial hardship. They also have financial hardship due to frequent hospitalizations as well. So this slide depicts some of the wide spectrum of clinical symptoms associated with NMOSD. Pain and fatigue are particularly prevalent in this disorder and often present management challenges. We also have the classic symptoms of NMOSD, including visual impairment that was highlighted in the polling question, bladder and bowel dysfunction, and neurologic disability and gait impairment. And cognitive and mood disorders also occur in NMOSD, although perhaps not as frequently as in multiple sclerosis. So you can see um, in terms of the pie graphs there, pain and fatigue are reported by more than 50% of people with this condition. Patient-reported outcome measures can be very helpful in clinical practice to get a sense of how patients experience their disease and also to direct symptomatic management. So a lot of these instruments come to us by way of multiple sclerosis, but they can be very relevant in the NMOSD context as well. We have several instruments for assessing quality of life. As mentioned on the last slide, we know that pain and fatigue are very prevalent, so you're going to want to screen for those, as well as different measures of disability. There can be a stigma against reporting of mental health conditions, so it is also very useful to screen for mental health conditions and treat them accordingly. So this uh, slide highlights some uh, common practices for management of the symptoms associated with NMOSD that often do persist in between attacks. So we know that mood and cognitive impairments occur often, and you may want to adopt pharmacologic approaches as well as other interventions. Neuropathic pain is very common in this condition. There are different medications that can be beneficial there. We know that fatigue and narcolepsy can be very common, and you want to think about behavioral strategies as well as medications. With respect to muscle weakness and motor dysfunction, again, we have medications like Dalthamprodine, but we also have rehabilitation-based approaches. Tonic spasms are very common in NMOSD and can occur, you know, even several weeks after an attack of longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis. They often respond very well to carbamazepine, but you may want to consider other strategies in terms of medications like muscle relaxants, as well as therapeutic approaches like daily stretching, exercise, and physical therapy. And bladder and bowel dysfunction is prevalent as well. It often needs a multimodal approach, so we can intervene with medications, but we also need to consider other strategies like pelvic floor PT, neuromodulation, and catheterization. So this slide highlights uh, some effects of pain seen in the recent clinical trials. So there was a lot of curiosity about whether the FDA approved therapies might be beneficial for pain. And unfortunately, in the Satralizumab trial, we didn't see a significant effect. But in momentum using inabilizumab, there was a year-on-year improvement in pain scores. So the novel monoclonal antibodies may be an approach for management of pain in this condition as well. And lastly, we wanna emphasize the importance of a multidisciplinary care team. So many different physicians are important for management of this condition. Besides neurologists, we often rely on our colleagues in ophthalmology and pain pain management as well. Uh, But we also know that the allied healthcare team is very important. It's good to involve early on psychologists, physiotherapists, social workers, occupational therapists, nutritionists, and nurse specialists. That We're going to launch into now uh, the Q&A section of this morning, so I'm going to return and we're going to address some more questions and feel free to continue to submit your questions via the app.
4: Yeah. So I want to add one thing to your talk and, and that's given the pre-question in which everyone pointed out how much visual impairment was a problem. Although we're not very good at rescuing injured optic nerves, we we do have facilities uh, in low vision that can really help patients with bilateral uh, visual impairment as well as severe unilateral visual impairment. So referring patients uh, that you have for a low vision appointment can be uh, quite helpful.
2: Okay, thank you for adding that. So we have a question here. If a patient is stable on traditional therapy with an immunosuppressant, so an off-label therapy, would you still consider switching them to one of the new approved immunotherapies? All
4: right, right. so I am uh, certainly of a camp that says, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. And uh, that would really uh, depend on the length of uh, good response. And I think the longer uh, that patients are uh, quiet with NMOSD, the etiology of attacks is a different biology than uh, we often see in the acute clinical trials, which enrolled uh, people with recent uh, NMO activity and activity that tends to cluster. So for that reason, um, I think by the burden of uh, time that's elapsed, I tend to keep them, but less than uh, roughly... Uh, three years at the time that we switched to approved therapies, I had no hesitation in uh, moving people uh, forward. And I will uh, put it simply this way there was a tremendous regression to the mean that allowed us to think that general immunosuppressive therapies were effective. If you look at the reduction of pre treatment in these retrospective studies, relapse rates. Uh, moving forward to what relapse rates were on therapy. In general, these trials reported about uh, 1.5 to 1.0 ARRs reducing down to annualized relapse rates, those ARRs of about uh, 0.5, which was highly uh, remarkable. Unfortunately, if you look at the placebo groups from our clinical trial, they ran about 0.5. So be careful about uh, thinking that you have a robust uh, clinical effect automatically with these. And I tend to uh, switch you know, very quickly unless someone, let's say, had been seven years, uh, eight, ten
3: years of which I had patients on therapy. Maybe I can make a, just another point. To, another thing to consider is some of the older generation oral medications mm-hmm. like um, azathioprine and mycophenolate do have some long-term risk of lymphoproliferative disorder. So that's another reason to potentially switch them off and switch them to the more proven uh, medications.
2: Yeah, Yeah, just to add to that, I I mean, I agree. I have a few patients on azathioprine who've required long-term prednisone as well to keep them (laughs) under control and develop a lot of secondary side effects like diabetes. So I think when there's a high burden of side effects due to the current medications, it can also be a reason to switch. But uh, as with Dr. Bennett, people who have been stable for many years, I'm I'm hesitant to to (laughs) mess with that. Okay, so we have another question from Andrew Tarr. How do you approach seronegative disease?
3: I'll let you take it is that. Um, so I, I presume that might be a question on how do we approach treatment of seronegative uh, NMOSD. We talked a lot about making sure that you have the right diagnosis. So your first step is going to be ensuring that, is this an atypical MS, is this sarcoidosis, and finding out the exact disease it is. If it turns out that it is seronegative NMOSD, um, you know, the medications that were mentioned today are not approved uh, for that condition, so it's very hard to get those approved. Sometimes we would use B-cell depleting medications because, uh, like rituximab, because that tends to work broadly across many different categories. So that would be a potential treatment that covers well MS. It works a little bit in MOG antibody disease. It works um, in aquaporin-4 antibody positive NMOSD. So I think that could be a broad treatment that we would consider as a first line. But the main thing is to make sure that it's not a different disease. Because if it's sarcoidosis, it might need TNF-alpha blockers or other treatments. Or if it's something else, it will need a different treatment. And then reassess the diagnosis going forward because Unlike with acroporn for antibody-positive NMOSD, you don't have a really super secure diagnosis when you're, you diagnose seronegative NMOSD, so always be open if things change and something looks different. You may need to do a biopsy or do additional investigations.
2: Okay. Did you want to weigh in, no,
4: Dr. I I think Owen oh, covered it quite well.
2: Uh, so we have a question here from Karen Freshwater. So she's asking, if you inherit a patient that's on disease-modifying therapy for MS, but you suspect that the real diagnosis is NMOSD or MOG antibody disease, um, would you expect your testing to still be sensitive for these antibodies, and how would you approach that situation?
3: Yeah, yeah I can uh, take this. Yeah, Most of the time, the, uh, the antibodies are still going to be positive. So we've looked at this a little bit in aquaporin 4, and we don't, see that the immunosuppressants have a major effect. There is a certain percent that may turn negative on B-cell depleting therapy, but it's a low percentage. So the vast majority will still be positive. So I think it's still worthwhile doing the test. And then if the patient uh, is positive, then they may need to switch to a treatment more aimed at those diseases. Unfortunately for MOG antibody disease, we don't yet have a proven treatment. So everything we're using there is empiric and uh, based on retrospective case series. So we're hoping we'll get treatments for MOG antibody disease in the future. But I think the, the traditional MS uh, disease-modifying medications don't work very well for, um, uh, for NMOSD and for MOGAD. The exception probably being B-cell depleting treatments, which tend to work at least somewhat across all categories.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's been my experience as well. And I would always retest, too, at the time of an attack because that tends to be a time of greater sensitivity. So if you think MS is the wrong diagnosis, the patient has a new relapse, send the antibodies off again. Okay, so another question we have from Judy Dieppe. In practice, are you able to keep patients on ecolizumab due to the frequency of infusions?
4: Um, I've had a good adherence amongst patients uh, with ecolizumab. Uh, I've had uh, a couple of patients um, that uh, elected to uh, go off due to the uh, frequency, Uh, some now with the early results uh, having heard about uh, ravalizumab, are now interested uh, once again with the longer A treatment interval between infusions at every two months, Uh, but of course we have to wait for approval uh, for that. I've also had one patient with an interval uh, bacterial infection who, uh, despite having to discontinue briefly while we treated that condition with antibiotics uh, because of some frustrating uh, treatment uh, with the drug still on board, we were able to get that under control and she still wanted to uh, remain on the drugs. So I think uh, it really uh, is going to be obviously dependent on the individual and uh, their lifestyle, but uh, it is such a uh, potent therapy and there is a significant amount of patient anxiety about attacks that uh, I haven't had a lot of clamor for patients once started to uh, come off.
2: Okay, thanks for sharing that. Uh, so just to close out this session, one final question. As we look towards the future, what would you like to see emphasized in research and also clinical development with respect to care and new therapies for NMOSD? Or I'll MOGAD?
3: Take, I'll let you go I, I can first. Take the, I, I think it, with MS, we have many, many different, very effective treatments nowadays. And with aquaporin-4 antibody, uh, positive NMOSD, we have very effective treatments. So I would like to see treatments in MOG antibody disease because we don't have any proven treatments. So I'd encourage people to try and enroll patients into clinical trials so that we can figure out uh, a treatment that works in that condition. And then for uh, seronegative NMOSD, I think we need to continue to research, see is there new antibodies that account for some of those patients and try and uh, uh, focus on that area of research too.
4: Yeah. I think as you've seen uh, throughout the talk today, we have three highly effective therapies in NMOSD for preventing future relapses, which means that in a disease which doesn't have a progressive phase and disability is linked to severity of attack, we are good at reducing the risk of future attacks and those attacks that happen are less severe which means a lot of disability is going to be related to that first attack. So where we need to focus, and I'm looking forward to, is the aggressive treatment with new strategies on the acute attack in NMOSD so that we can limit the disability that happens for each attack and really finish up the circle in what it is in terms of caring for uh, patients with this disorder.
2: Okay, thanks very much. And I think that's an important note to close on. So thank you all for your attention this morning. I think as you saw, it's a very exciting time for NMOSD. We've seen tremendous advances in diagnosis and management of this disorder over the last few years, especially with respect to treatment and with more to come in the future as well. And I want to thank my colleagues as well, Dr. Bennett and Dr. Flanagan, for their excellent talks.
0: Thank you to the experts for their practical insights into the diagnosis and management of NMOSD and thank you for listening to this touch podcast. You can access further activities on NMOSD on touchophthalmology.com.